A shocking look at the timeline of Dr. Fauci's email correspondence proves that Fauci knew that COVID-19 was not only leaked from the Wuhan lab, but he knew it was most likely the result of a gain-of-function experiment at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, funded, of course, by himself at the NIH. How the highest-paid bureaucrat on the federal payroll staged the most scandalous cover-up in history? We're going to talk about that today. Plus, the most hilarious smackdown this year from the fossil fuel industry. I know, I was surprised too. To woke virtue-signaling losers at North Face. And even though Twitter banned President Trump, the New York Times, of all places, demonstrates how Trump's reach is still astronomical. And of course, the show would not be complete without talking about AOC's abuela and Kamala Harris visiting Guatemala. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Okay, just when you think the Fauci scandal couldn't get worse, it does. Speaking of scandal and things you want to avoid, did you know every time you type something into your browser, into the Google search or whatever you search, your internet service provider can read that? That's why I use ExpressVPN. There are a lot of things I search for online that just frankly aren't anybody's business. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history, your internet service provider can still see every single website you have ever visited. Doesn't that make you feel violated? That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN. Internet service providers in the U.S. can legally sell the information. They don't just look at it. They can sell your information to ad companies. So ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet service provider can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. All you have to do is tap one button. It's super easy and you are protected. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash Liz, expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more and protect your information today. Okay, so the entire Fauci email correspondence can be summarized in just two words. Fauci knew. Just check his emails. Fauci knew that COVID-19 was not only leaked from the Wuhan lab, he knew it was most likely the result of a gain-of-function experiment at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which, of course, was funded by taxpayer money contracted by Fauci himself. And then, so we established that already. Now we're going to talk about how Fauci staged the most scandalous cover-up in history. I'm not being hyperbolic here. Now, full credit for the reporting of this timeline from Fauci's emails goes to Jeff Carlson and Hans Monkey. Now, if you are going to be as mind blown as I am about this massive, this monstrous cover-up, you can take action in two ways. First, talk about it. The left wants nothing more than to silence us. Talk about it. Demand that your congressman call on Fauci to resign. Make it inevitable that Fauci is fired. He deserves to be fired. Second, reach out and follow Jeff Carlson and Hans Monkey and thank them for their meticulous documentation of the timeline, which we will illustrate in just a moment, by Fauci in his own emails. Their social media handles are at the markets work and at Hans Monkey. So before we even get to the most scandalous cover-up in history, let's talk about what we already know. So Scott Gottlieb, he's the former FDA commissioner, he said that Dr. Fauci briefed world leaders on the potential of a lab leak a year ago. Listen. I was told at that time, back in the spring, um, that 
Dr. Fauci had gone over to a meeting of world health leaders in Europe around the World Health Assembly and actually briefed them on the information that they were looking at, that this could have been a potential lab leak, that this strain looked unusual. So those discussions were going on. And I was told that by a very senior official in the Trump administration. I've reconfirmed that conversation. That happened you know, at the time contemporaneously with, uh, with that meeting over a year ago. A year ago. Back when we started talking about this and we were told that we were conspiracy theorists. Fauci knew about this, and he thought it was significant enough that he briefed world leaders. He traveled to Europe to brief world leaders. Okay, so we know that. So then there's a Wall Street Journal piece out this week that talks about how, regardless of the anecdotal evidence, the fact that um, the workers at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or their spouses or their family got sick, regardless of other anecdotal evidence that is shady coming out of that, that lab, how the actual science of the virus itself makes it most likely that it was the result of gain-of-function experiments, okay? This is what these scientists say. They say, the COVID-19 pathogen has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus. The scientists who wrote this, it's Dr. K and Dr. Mueller. Mueller's an emeritus professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley. Okay, so this is not, this is not some Joe off the street. This is what they write. Quote, the most compelling reason to favor the lab leak hypothesis is firmly based in science. In particular, consider the genetic a fingerprint of COV-2, the novel coronavirus responsible for the disease COVID-19. They say in gain-of-function research, a microbiologist can increase the lethality of a coronavirus enormously by splicing a special sequence into its genome at a prime location. Doing this leaves no trace of manipulation, but it alters the virus spike protein, rendering it easier for the virus to inject genetic material into the victim cell. Since 1992, there have been at least 11 separate experiments adding a special sequence to the same location. The end result has always been supercharged viruses. They go on to say, a genome is a blueprint for the factory of a cell to make proteins. The language is made up of three-letter, quote-unquote, words, 64 in total that represent the 20 different amino acids. Now, our listeners and viewers who are science-minded, I'm sure, know about this, but this is what these scientists write in layman's terms, explaining what they saw in the COVID-19 virus in this COV uh, to coronavirus that is questionable. They say, quote, in the case of the gain of function supercharge, other sequences could have been spliced into the same site. Instead of a CGG, CGG, known as double CGG, that tells the protein factory to make two amino acids in a row, you'll obtain equal lethality by splicing any one of the 35 other two-word combinations for double Argentine. If the insertion takes place naturally, say through recombination, then one of those 35 other sequences is far more likely to appear. CGG is rarely used in the class of coronaviruses that can recombine with COV-2. This is pretty heady stuff, but keep following. It's pretty interesting. They say, in fact, in the entire class of coronaviruses that includes COV-2, the CGG-CGG combination has never been found naturally. That means the common method of viruses picking up new skills called recombination cannot operate here. A virus simply cannot pick up a sequence from another virus if that sequence isn't present in any other virus. Although the double CGG, they say, is suppressed naturally, the opposite is true in laboratory work. The insertion sequence of choice is the double CGG. That's because it's readily available and convenient, and scientists have a great deal of experience inserting it. An additional advantage of the double CGG sequence compared with the other 35 possible choices, it creates a useful beacon that permits the scientists to track the insertion in the laboratory. Now they say, now the damning fact. It was this exact sequence that appears in COV-2. Proponents of zoonotonic origin must explain why the novel coronavirus, when it mutated or recombined, 
happened to pick its least favorite combination, the double CGG. Why did it replicate the choice the lab's gain-of-function researchers would have made? That's a good question. They'd say, yes, it could have happened randomly through mutations, but do you believe that? At the minimum, this fact that the coronavirus, with all its random possibilities, took the rare and unnatural combination used by human researchers implies that the leading theory for the origin of the coronavirus must be laboratory escape. So then they say, when the labs, Dr. Xi and colleagues published a paper in February of 2020 with the virus's partial genome, they omitted any mention of the special sequence that supercharges the virus or the rare double CGG section. Yet the fingerprint is easily identified in the data that accompanied the paper. Was it omitted in the hope that nobody would notice this evidence of the gain-of-function origin? They go on. They say, in the matter of weeks, virologists Bruno Coutard and colleagues published their discovery of the sequence in COV2 and its novel Supercharged Site. Double CGG is there. You only have to look. They comment in their paper that the protein that held it may provide a gain-of-function capability to the virus for efficient spreading to humans. These scientists conclude... The presence of the double CGG sequence is strong evidence of gene splicing and the absence of diversity in the public outbreak suggests gain-of-function acceleration. The scientific evidence points to the conclusion that the virus was developed in a laboratory. End quote. That's the end of the article. So that's what we know. We know that science shows it's most likely lab-created, which means leaked from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The Chinese covered it up, and Fauci knew. Speaking of fighting the culture wars and fighting for truth, let's talk about the long game for a second. We've known for a long time that America, our country, is under siege. We're in a war for the soul of our nation. Now, the new president of Young America's Foundation, Governor Scott Walker, is launching the long game, a plan to save America as we know it, as we love her. From big tech kicking people off the platform, to cancel culture crazies ruining people's lives, to Democrats grabbing every bit of power that they can from us, we are in the middle of a crisis. And it's time to fight back. We need to play offense. The left has been attempting to take over our college campuses for decades, destroying free speech, destroying America's founding values, delegitimizing our country as a whole to the point that conservatives can barely even speak on university campuses now. So the long game spearheaded by Governor Walker and my friends at YAF, it's a plan to halt the left's attacks. This is a plan to invest in young people, invest in our culture, and hold the left accountable. So to join this important fight to save America and get your free copy of The Long Game, you can go to yaf.org slash longgame to get your copy of The Long Game so that you can take part in these culture wars too. Okay, so now back to the biggest cover-up in history, the highest-paid bureaucrat, Anthony Fauci, whose email trails show that he knew, he knew about the potentially engineered virus and that it potentially likely leaked from this lab. So this is the reporting from Jeff Carlson that establishes that Fauci knew the evidence of a cover-up. We're going to go through this Twitter thread and I'm going to read it. January 31st. These are emails from and to Dr. Fauci. January 31st, 2020. Fauci receives an email at 8.43 p.m. from Greg Folkers at the NIH. The email contains no text, only a single lengthy article that had been published in the magazine Science that evening. The article was one of the earliest stories that described how scientists were working on viral genomes in order to, quote, understand the origin of 2019 and COVID. The article also noted a November 9th, 2015 article in the journal Nature about gain-of-function experiments at the Wuhan lab. Fauci forwarded the science article to Jason Mascola of the NIH at 9.47 p.m. Two minutes later, Fauci also forwarded the article to Jeremy Farrer the head of Wellcome Trust, a British nonprofit 
and to Christian Anderson, a professor at Scripps Research. Fauci also emailed the article to Robert Kedlick at Health and Human Services Office of the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at 9.49 p.m. At 10.32 p.m. that evening, Fauci received an email response from Anderson, who acknowledged receiving that article and made the observation. According to Anderson, and I quote, the unusual features of the virus make up a really small part of the genome. So no one has to look really closely at all, at all the sequences to see that some of the features potentially look engineered. Earlier that day, Anderson had sent a tweet rebutting Senator Tom Cotton's theory that the virus could have stemmed from the Wuhan lab, saying the analyses are completely flawed and wrong. They can safely be ignored. February 1st, 2020, at 7.29 a.m., Fauci sent Hugh Ochoclos, NIAID's principal deputy director, the 2015 Nature article that detailed the gain-of-function experiments and the funding by NIH. Fauci included a strongly worded message saying, it is essential that we speak this AM, keep your cell phone on. Fauci directed Ochenklaus to read this paper as well as the email that I will forward to you now. You will have tasks today that must be done. The 2015 Nature article, the gain-of-function article, was referenced indirectly in the recently published article by Cohen. 35 seconds later, Fauci followed up by sending Ochenklaus the newly published science article that had been forwarded to him the evening before. At 8.19 a.m., Fauci sent the Nature article to Lawrence Tabak at NIH in an email marked as important. Fauci simply told Tabak, here it is. About two hours later at 10.34 a.m., Farrar sent out a group email announcing a 2 p.m. conference call. His email noted that information and discussion is shared in total confidence and not to be shared until agreement on next steps. Included in the email was a brief agenda that included the items, introduction, focus, and desired outcomes, and summary and next steps. Including Farrar, there were a total of 13 people listed on the teleconference agenda. Shortly after Farrar's email on the conference call, Auchincloss responded to Fauci at 11.47 a.m. under an email thread with the subject line of continued. This email chain differed from the one that Fauci had initiated when he sent the two articles earlier that morning. Fauci responded to Auchincloss's email simply at 12.51 p.m. Okay, stay tuned. At 1.13 p.m., Farrar sent an email relating to the pending 2 p.m. call. It said, Christian and Eddie have shared this and will talk through it on the call. Thank you. Hope it will help frame the discussions. At 1.43 p.m., Marion Koopmans, who oversees a Dutch lab that was previously involved with gain-of-function experiments, sent an email to Farrar and CC'd Fauci and other members of the call. The body of Koopman's email is fully redacted. Also at 1.43 at p.m., Fauci responded to Anderson's email, which had previously noted that one has to look really closely at all the sequences to see that some of these features potentially look engineered. Fauci simply wrote, thanks, Christian. Talk soon on the call. The teleconference ostensibly began at 2 p.m. At 2.56 p.m. During, during the teleconference, Farrar sent an email to four of the 13 individuals believed to be on the call, including Fauci, saying, can I suggest we shut down the call and then redial in just for five or 10 minutes? At 3.03 p.m., Fauci responded directly to Farrar's request with a simple yes. At 3.07 p.m., Farrar appears to have rejoined the call, sending an email that read somewhat confusingly, I have rejoined, so a line is open if any help to rejoin. The next email is sent at 3.50 p.m., an email by Collins, who appears to reference the World Health Organization head Tedros. It read, Hi, Jeremy. I can make myself available at any time 24-7 for the call with Tedros. Just let me know. Thanks for your leadership on this critical and sensitive issue. Francis. 
Farrar's email at 3.59 said, there's clearly much to understand in this. This call was very unhelpful to hear some of our current understanding and the many gaps in our knowledge. It was then redacted. It concluded, I hope that's a reasonable approach. Please send any thoughts or suggestions. On February 2nd, 2020, at 3.30 a.m., Ron Fauchier sent an email to unknown recipients, thanking Farrar for the useful teleconference and included a section titled Ron's Notes. The section of notes spans more than two full pages and is completely redacted. Farrar sent an email at 4.48 a.m. to Anthony Rambau and others on the teleconference. Farrar said, this is a very complex issue, followed by a long redaction. Farrar closed by saying, I suggest we don't get into a further scientific discussion here, but wait for that group to be established. The head of the NIH, Collins, then sent an email to Farrar at 5.27 a.m. stating that he was available for a call to Tedros. Let me know if I can help get through this thicket of protectors, he wrote. The email was copied to Fauci and Tabak. On February 2nd, 2020, at 7.13 a.m., Collins sent an email to Farrar and CC'd Fauci and Tabak, noting, really appreciate us thinking through the options. This entry is followed by a one-line redaction. At 11.28 a.m., Farrar's email to Fauci and Collins, CCing Tabak, read, Tedros and Bernhard have apparently gone into conclave. They need to decide today, in my view. If they do prevaricate, I would appreciate a call with you later tonight or tomorrow to think how we might take forward. Farrar added a link to a Zero Hedge article on the possibility that the coronavirus came out of a lab. The day after Farrar's message, Zero Hedge was banned from Twitter. Although it isn't known what WHO Director Tedros was told or asked on the February 3rd, 2020, he issued his Report of the Director General, which included a call to combat the spread of rumors and misinformation. Tedros also tweeted about it. This is new information. Again, kudos to these guys, these journalists. We're linking, um, we're linking to their Twitter accounts. You can go follow their great work because they're the ones who combed through the emails to find this. This is absolutely nuts. What this tells us, not only did Fauci know that the genome of this virus looked potentially engineered, and he's a scientist. He knows exactly what the Wall Street Journal reported on this week. He knows why it looked potentially engineered. He knew that money from the NIH had gone to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Therefore, he had given our tax money to the bat lady. He therefore knew that it was very likely that this was a lab leak. He also knew that the other competing theory that this was naturally derived or naturally emerging had no evidence to back that up. The wet market, the bat soup theories, those had no substantiation, no evidence. So what this shows is a group of top scientists and top virologists who were all involved, or most of whom were involved and educated in gain-of-function experiments, were talking in a flurry all day and all night, not only about the reports, the current reports, that this could have leaked from a lab, but references from years ago that showed that the Wuhan Institute of Virology conducted these gain-of-function experiments. Remember, Fauci said to Rand Paul, the NIH does not give money to gain-of-function experiments. He tried to paint what was happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology as not being gain-of-function experiments. Yet he knew, based on these emails, he knew that 2015 Nature article referenced him in reference to the gain-of-function experiments that were happening at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So he got together his group, his group of virologists and scientists, and they collaborated on a response. We don't know exactly what they said to each other because it's all redacted. But what we do know is Fauci knew, and we have proof that he knows, he got together with this group of virologists, then we have redacted, and then what came next? 
all these people publicly said that the lab leak theory was a conspiracy, that the evidence showed that it was naturally emerging, and they showed no proof or evidence of that. That is called a cover-up. Fauci appears, based on his email correspondence, to have been part of a cover-up one year ago, one and a half years ago almost, covering up the origins of the COVID-19 virus to cover his own tail because he had culpability in funding those experiments in China. If you don't think this is a big deal, I don't know how to talk to you. Look at what's happened in our country. Our economy is wrecked. People's lives have been upended. Our freedoms have been violated. Our businesses shut down. Our children held out of school. Masks plastered to our face by mandate. And this was done to us by China. And we're not going to hold them accountable because Fauci covered up the fact that it came from China. It was a manipulated virus because he had financially supported it. That's what these emails show. It's absolutely shocking. One of the most scandalous cover-ups that I can think of. So don't let the left tell you it's not a big deal. There's no smoking gun in these emails. You decide for yourself based on what I just told you. Speaking of the free flow of valuable information, let's talk for a second about locals. If you have been following me over the last year, then you know I've been censored time and time again by Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, all the social network platforms. They've demonetized my videos. They continue to restrict my reach. And I don't want big tech to control my ability to communicate important stories like we're talking about today to you. So I partnered with Locals to create a censorship-free community. Locals is a platform launched by free speech fanatic. He's also my pal, Dave Rubin. And it's a place where we can share the unfiltered, unapologetic truth about the mainstream media and the left's lies without fear of being shut down by the corporate overlords or fact-checked by people who were involved in these very scandals. So I'm inviting you today to become a Liz Wheeler Show VIP. I have lots of exciting new things coming up, and I'm going to be regularly checking with my VIPs for opinions and for feedback. I'm going to be sharing behind-the-scenes looks at my show, the research, the filming process. Plus, I'll be doing exclusive segments just for VIPs. So please join us. The monthly subscription is $9, but if you want a deal, you can sign up for just for the annual subscription for just $72. I'll do the math for you. That's four months free. So come support the show. Let's get to know each other. Become a Liz Wheeler Show VIP today at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. Okay, so clearly Fauci and his ilk are the biggest hypocrites ever, but there are other hypocrites that I want to talk about today. The biggest hypocrites ever, and this is perhaps the funniest story that I have heard all week. The biggest hypocrites ever are the fossil fuel opponents, people who want to ban fossil fuels, right? We're talking about the AOCs and the Green New Deal and the cow flatulence and the never fly on an airplane again, uh, folks who say that stuff as they are using, you know, as they are using private jets like Al Gore and, uh, and John Kerry and all these other hypocrites, these woke hypocrites. So let me tell you a funny story. So a fossil fuel company wanted to have North Face apparel customized for their business, right? So their employees could wear branded North Face apparel. North Face refused. They said, we do not support, and this is a paraphrase, we do not support the fossil fuel industry. We will not take part in this. This is the response from the fossil fuel industry. Funniest thing I've seen all day. Take a listen. I'm Chris Wright, CEO of Liberty Energy. North Face recently came out against my industry, even refusing to let one of my competitors put their company logo on a North Face jacket. I went through North Face's website of wide-ranging products, and I failed to find a single product that wasn't made out of oil and gas. The great majority of North Face's products 
Jackets, backpacks, outdoor pants, shirts, shoes, hats, etc., are dominantly made out of the oil and gas that we so proudly produce. Globally, 60% of all clothing fibers are made out of oil and gas. For North Face, it is likely 90% or more. So North Face is not only an extraordinary customer of the oil and gas industry, they are also a partner with the oil and gas industry. So thank you, North Face. And you're welcome. Literally the funniest thing I've seen all week. And to be honest, it surprised me that this kind of comedy came from the fossil fuel industry. They do make a really, really good point, though. So the people, the leftists who are the most vehemently against fossil fuels don't I, I don't know if they don't understand or they don't care how much oil and gas are used in our everyday life. Right. So the clothes you're wearing, the textiles you use in your home, your shoes, pesticides and fertilizers, which are important because if we don't have pesticides and fertilizers, then food crops can die out, which can lead to starvation. So not only the clothes that you wear and your household items, but the food supply is affected by oil and gas. Also, medicine. Medicine is made from petrochemicals. So life-saving medicine, they want to ban oil and gas. They want to ban fossil fuels. Where are we going to get that medicine? Medical instruments, surgical instruments, also made from petrochemicals, from fossil fuels, oil and gas, not to mention obvious things like energy and cars and airplanes, et cetera, et cetera. These people are the biggest hypocrites on the planet and kudos to the fossil fuel industry. Funniest video that I've seen all week. I thought you guys would enjoy it. Okay, our next hypocrite. Oh, this is a really good one too. Our next hypocrite, of course, Twitter. Surprise, surprise. So Twitter was banned in Nigeria just this past week because Twitter had censored a tweet from the Nigerian president, which they said was inciting violence. So they deleted the tweet and in response, the Nigerian government blocked Twitter. So this is how Twitter responded. They said, we are deeply concerned by the blocking of Twitter in Nigeria. Access to the free and open internet is an essential human right in modern society. We will work to restore access for all those in Nigeria who rely on Twitter to communicate and connect with the world. Hashtag keep it open. You heard that right. You did. Twitter said access to the free and open internet is an essential human right in modern society. Unless you're Donald Trump. Or perhaps unless you're reporting on Hunter Biden's laptop. Or perhaps unless you discuss the biology of gender. Or unless you're the murderous dictator of Iran threatening to annihilate Israel. Or unless you're a Chinese Communist Party peon lying about COVID. Suddenly, for all those people, Twitter access to a free and open internet doesn't seem to be an essential human right. Twitter, you're in the running for our biggest hypocrite of the week. Okay, this next story I find to be extremely interesting and also very illustrative for the uh, folks who are thinking about running for president on the Republican side in 2024. If I was running for president, this is the kind of data, this is the kind of evidence that I would incorporate immediately into my campaign. So Republican candidates in the state of Texas swept several races, citywide races for mayors. Now you may think, well, that's not exactly what I thought you were gonna say. That's not, that's not the sexy story I thought you were gonna display. Let me tell you why it is. McAllen, Texas, this is a border city, right? A border city, it's 150,000 people. 85% of the people in McAllen, Texas are Hispanic. They elected a Republican mayor for the first time since 1997. That's a huge deal. 
85% of their population are Hispanic, and they just elected a Republican mayor. That's not an anomaly. It happened in Fort Worth, too. Fort Worth is a huge city. It's like the 12th largest city in our country, okay? Less than a third of them are white. But a Republican mayoral candidate named Maddie Parker won the election. This is, this is not an anomaly. It's happening, all, it's happening all over Texas. In cities that are not majority white, which in this, the reason the racial demographic is important is for two reasons. One, the Democrats' narrative tells us that only white people support Republicans. Clearly, that's not true. But historically, Hispanics have been a liberal voting demographic. But suddenly they're seeing that liberals and Democrats are betraying them and Republicans are offering them solutions to the issues that they care about, like law and order and border security. So it's not just McAllen, Texas and Fort Worth. In Arlington, this is nearby to Fort Worth. Okay, they have a 40% white population. A Republican won. This Republican's platform was law and order. He's a former police officer and he won. Okay, he defeated a Democrat who was endorsed by other Democratic politicians, by the Dallas Morning News even. That's three now. Then we have a fourth. We have a fourth, a Republican. Javier Villalobos won in the Rio Grande Valley. Now, this is probably the most important of them all. Why? Because the Rio Grande Valley borders Mexico. The border crisis is personal to this area. Villalobos defeated the Democrats. This is four mayors, four Republican candidates who won mayoral seats in Texas. They all ran on a platform of law and order. The border towns, these candidates ran on respecting the rule of law when it comes to immigration. If you let this, if you let this sink in, this is what Republicans need to do in 2024, okay? Because these numbers that we're just seeing in Texas right now, after Biden has exacerbated the border crisis, this is even more serious than the numbers that we saw when Biden won these areas, right? So Biden won the, these areas in Texas by maybe 15 points, which is a lot less than Hillary Clinton won in 2016. But little by little, people in these regions are seeing that Democrats are betraying them and they're choosing Republicans. If I'm one of the GOP candidates considering 2024, this is extremely important to me. It's extremely important to me because of the idea of big tent Republicanism. And I want to talk about this because so many people misunderstand what big tent Republicanism should mean. They perceive it to mean, well, we should sacrifice some of our social issues as a party. We should, you know, stop talking about religious issues. We should cave on abortion. We should stay quiet on gay marriage and the transgender ideology so that more people who wouldn't be Republican join our party. No, that's not what big tent Republicanism should mean. What big tent Republicanism should mean is that the Republican Party identifies demographics of voters who are being underserved or potentially even betrayed by Democratic candidates and then explains how limited government, individual liberty, conservative Republican policy issues best address the things that meet the needs of those underserved demographics. And I'll give you two examples. One is Hispanics and border security, law and order. The second 
is black moms and school choice. I've been talking about this for two years, long before Governor DeSantis was as popular as he is. I pointed out why he won in Florida against Andrew Gillum. He won, DeSantis won his election by 30,000 votes, but the deciding factor, the demographic that won him that election were African-American moms whose children took part in school choice programs in the state of Florida. And Andrew Gillum, the Democratic candidate, was threatening to take away those school choice options. DeSantis said he was to expand them. So 100,000 African-American school choice moms voted Republican, even though they were registered Democrats, and even though they voted for the Democrat Senate candidate. They chose DeSantis because he understood what was important to them and promised to make it better, promised to help their families prosper. This is what big tent Republicanism is. This is what big tent Republicanism should be. If I am one of the GOP candidates, and I'm not saying I am, I'm saying the GOP candidates should listen to this. You identify demographics that are underserved and you run candidates. You support policies that best serve them. This is a hugely important story. Hugely important story. Okay. And now let's talk about some fun things from the, around the web this week. First up, Matt Walsh from The Daily Wire um, raised $100,000 for AOC's abuela. So this is it, this was in the running for the funniest thing online this week, uh, tied with the fossil fuel video. But here's what happened. So AOC had published these pictures of her grandmother in Puerto Rico, these, these horrible conditions that her grandmother was living in, and essentially blaming the United States government, Republicans, our country in general for the condition of Puerto Rico in general and of her grandmother. So Matt Walsh started a GoFundMe to raise money to help AOC's abuela because he was trying to point out AOC's hypocrisy, right? AOC is a congresswoman. She makes hundreds of thousands of dollars. She rides around in a Tesla, which is a very expensive vehicle, and she can't help her own grandmother. So he raised $100,000. And I, I truly don't get, there were a lot of conservatives and Republicans who didn't like this. And I don't get this at all. Let me tell you, this is exactly the kind of culture war that Republicans should take part in. And Matt Walsh did it in exactly the right way. You have to use comedy and irony to make the other side look like fools. And that's what he did. AOC's family then rejected the money. They wouldn't take the $100,000. So Matt Walsh was successful in what he was trying to do. He was trying to point out AOC's hypocrisy and her elitism and her lying. And so he put her in a position where either she rejected the money, which is horrible for her grandmother, if her grandmother is truly living in that in that kind of squalor, or he exposed her for exploiting fake, basically creating her grandmother into this picture of a fake victim. It's a lose-lose for AOC. Well done, Matt Walsh. I laughed every time I saw this. So that was uh, one of the funniest things on the web. Also, I don't know if you guys have seen this, and I have to say, before I even show this video, I'd probably be one of the people that would use this. <laughs> Take a look at this. So this is um, a third eye, the guy calls it. This is a, an innovator from South Korea who has invented, I think it's a joke, I think it's satire. He's invented a solution for those of us who are smartphone zombies when they walk. And I'm sorry, I am one of these people. <laughs> I, can't, I can't keep my phone in my pocket or in my purse. I have to know what my notifications are. So he created a third eye on the forehead. Can you even imagine if people walked around like this? I'd probably do it if he sent me one. I'd probably try it just to see, just to see if it works. So funny, so ridiculous. Not a good commentary on me and others like me who are smartphone zombies, but a very funny invention. Okay, this is not so much funny as very interesting. The New York Times did an analysis of the reach on social media of President Trump's comments after he'd been banned from social media. 
So this is what they wrote. Um, and by the way, this is not just Twitter, not just Facebook. This is overall how much his posts were amplified. So we know that on Facebook and Twitter, he had incredible reach, incredible amplification. And then afterward, he would put out statements or for a short time, he had statements that he would release on his blog and people would still post them places, but he didn't have that organic reach because, or I guess it was organic, but it wasn't initiated by him, right? He made the comment somewhere else. Other people put it on social media. So this is what the New York Times found. Quote, before the ban, the social media post, meaning Trump's post, with the median engagement generated 272,000 likes and shares. After the ban, that dropped to 36,000 likes and shares. Yet 11 of Trump's 89 statements after the ban attracted as many likes or shares as the median post before the ban, if not more. They then give an example. They say, on October 8th, Mr. Trump tweeted that then-Democratic presidential candidate Joseph R. Biden Jr. and his running mate Kamala Harris lied constantly. The post was liked and shared 501,000 times on Facebook and Twitter. On March 21st, Mr. Trump published a statement on his website saying that his administration had handed over the most secure border in history. He went on to criticize the Biden administration's handling of the border crisis. Quote, our country is being destroyed, Mr. Trump said. The statement was liked and shared more than 661,000 times. End quote. Believe it or not, this was from the New York Times. I'm not sure what their motive for publishing something honest, but what does that tell you? Even if you get banned on social media, even if the radical left tries to stop you, the people want bold politicians, the people like Donald Trump, and cancel culture, even if you're canceled, doesn't have to silence you if you speak reality. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. I hardly ever encourage people to go to the New York Times because I don't want them to get more clicks than they deserve. This is actually a very interesting article to read in its entirety. Okay, so there are more things that we could talk about uh, today. However, Jay Hay, in my ear, the great and powerful, my producer says that we will have to talk more tomorrow. If you missed yesterday's episode about our need for AR-15s and Gavin Newsom's tantrum, please go and download that episode. Uh, think for yourself in the meantime, before we come back tomorrow, use critical thought and not critical theory. Question authority. Follow the facts. Don't let government or corporate wokeism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Download the episodes. Give us five-star ratings, glowing reviews. This is the Liz Wheeler Show, but we are not done. If you are a Locals VIP, we're going to talk about Kamala Harris and the real reason that she went to Guatemala, the reason she did not say publicly. If you want to see the rest of this segment, hear everything that we're going to talk about, head on over to Locals, the Liz Wheeler Show community at lizwheelershow.com slash locals. See you there. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Stephen Reyes. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Assistant editor, Tommy Weber. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.